0: You are listening to Tea for Two. I'm Iona Italia. And I'm Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics,
1: society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us.
0: You are listening to our very first episode. We're going to talk about who we are and why we're bringing you this podcast. Hello there. You're listening to Tea for Two. This is Iona i I'm Helen Pluckrose and I'm coming to you today from Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, I'm just visiting here so this is not going to be my normal location
1: and Helen is coming to you from? From just outside London, it's, it's Essex, I don't like to admit that but it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm really sorry, at least only one of us is coming to you from Essex,
1: <laughs> I do apologise
0: for that. Um, Today, this is going to be a very informal introductory episode. Uh, We're also both completely new to podcasting, so you may have to bear with us a little bit. But we're going to talk about uh, who we are and um, why we want to have this podcast. And what our kind of political and social uh, leanings are.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we could have done that. Uh, before getting started, but we thought it might be nice to sort of have this initial chat recorded and, and share it with you. You're welcome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyway, so who are we? Let's start with you, Helen. How would you describe yourself?
1: Ah, well, I, um, I well, originally I was, uh, I worked in social work and, and nursing, but then after a neurological condition I got, went back to university and I have studied English literature at undergraduate and early modern studies at postgraduate, at which point I um, came in contact with a lot of um, postmodernism and critical theory, which has sort of formed what I've been doing ever since. So I, I came into the whole sort of uh, writing arguing politi- political discussions um ethical philosophical whatever thing through the whole sort of new atheist thing that was where I began and I've always seen it as having sort of two sides the the epistemology what what is true and how we know what is true, and also the ethical side the whole sort of um illiberal aspect of um of some religions and of some sort of interpretation of every religion. So I have argued from a sort of liberal, humanist, um, rationalist perspective that we need to have evidence for what we say is true, and that we need to Prioritise human rights and equal opportunities and and equal freedoms for everybody. And now that um, the new atheist movement has passed, I mean, I'm, I'm still very much a secularist. I'm still concerned about religious um, human rights abuses. But that that the the conversation really got got had. You know, it doesn't need to be revisited all the time now. But we're looking now at a, a sort of new problem that has just sort of quite rapidly increased, which is is very similar in many ways, which is the whole sort of rise of the, the postmodern left, which has sort of similar ideas of a denial of objective reality, of illiberalism, of collectivism, of um, judging people by their race, gender or sexuality. So... I'm I'm sort of well. I'm coming from exactly the same place as I always was, but my my target has changed gradually, but now with increasing speed towards illiberal ideologies on the left. I've also illiberal ideologies on the right, but as a lefty and as somebody who sort of understands the epistemology underlying all of this, I'm mostly focusing on fixing the left. I'm a um, a little
0: bit of uh, biography, um, autobiography. I'm a former academic. Um, I taught. Um, I did a PhD in English literature, and uh, I wrote a book about eighteenth century um, eighteenth <clears throat> century essayists and journalists. It was called Anxious Employment, a title which has unfortunately become way too autobiographical for comfort. <laughs> um, but, uh, and I taught it at uh, universities in Britain and in the US until 2006, when I moved to Argentina and uh, trained and became a professional Argentine tango dancer. Since 2009, I've also been working as a freelance writer, editor, translator. I also feel that it's, there is a shortage of, let me say, loud, sensible voices on the left.
1: Mm. So yeah, I absolutely I, agree.
0: <laughs> I believe that there, that the... Um, What some people are calling the regressive left or the control left. Some people refer to them as SJWs, social justice warriors. Mm -hmm. Or I like to use the term the ultra woke.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I quite like to, to talk about them as the social justice left because... Um, this is how they they talk about themselves so I I feel like that's the the closest you know with a capital S and a capital J and when you're sort of reading um, the journals that um, sort of supply them with ideas then they are talking about um, social justice with that with those capitals so I think that's I think that's probably the best way to describe them, which is true to how they consider themselves, which is not necessarily literally true as to how we consider them. We might have quite a different conception of social justice.
0: Yes, indeed we do. And I I would also emphasise that although we're saying they for convenience, Mm. and there are certain figures who firmly identify with all points of that leftist agenda... Mm. which I think we'll come on to in a moment. Nevertheless, this is more of a leaning and a movement and a tendency rather than an identifiable group of people. But it's a way of thinking, Mm. and it is very much, um, I would say, um, based upon an idea of um, retributive justice.
1: Mm.
0: So um, it's it's about... um, Taking people who have traditionally been disadvantaged and giving them extra advantages, yeah. which can be a good thing, but can also lead to a um, a lot of um, unfairness and a, and a kind of continual cycle of what I would call a sort of
1: revenge-based yeah. cycle. <laughs> I was just going to say I I think this is, this is the big divide that um, I'm shortly going to write a, a piece about this with, with James that I think really needs to be understood from the underlying ideology because, uh, you and I and um, most liberals we are working on this sort of universal liberalism, this sense of consistency and fair, fairness and presenting a, a level playing field. And then when we have the um, the sort of social justice left and they're looking at terms of uh, yeah, re- retributive, reparative um, justice, when they're looking at elevating some voices and suppressing others, that really does not sit well with the universal liberal at all. And I think to understand where they are coming from it is really essential to understand the ideas that that came originally from academia which came originally from postmodernism, but which have evolved and it is these this idea of constructing reality of standpoint theory of knowledge being what is dictated by the dominant groups so if if that were simplistically true if everything we thought we knew had been constructed by white men then it would make absolute sense to get white men to shut up and elevate these other voices it would expand our knowledge it would be good for absolutely everyone and I think you you can't understand where they're coming from unless you understand This perception of society as dominated by structures of privilege and marginalization and epistemic injustice and and all of these ideas where where language really constructs reality. And so language is dangerous. And it's so complex, but uh, and yet it's sort of been internalised in, in a sort of condensed, bastardised form until it just feels right to people. And and looking at it from the outside, you just think, well, well, this is just so blatantly unfair. This is so discriminatory. How do they not see this? And I I think that that is the big puzzle of our age. It's how to get through to this, how to talk from the two sides, the, the universal side and the, the structures of, of power sides. And try and and reconcile or or compromise or or reset these two sort of conflicting visions of society? So
0: um, I would consider myself part of the old left, the socio-economic left. Um, I'm an old-fashioned socialist, Scandinavian socialist, not Venezuelan, not the Venezuelan (laughs) kind. I support um, a very strong welfare state. So a capitalist system, because capitalism, I believe, is the only efficient way we have found to generate wealth, but a capitalist system with very strong social safety nets. And you so can afford I'm in fa- them. Yes. <laughs> Sorry <laughs>
1: interrupt you. You can exactly. afford them when you of have course. capitalism. Carry on. Sorry. Of
0: course. <laughs> you need wealth generation in order to be able to have these kinds of safety nets. Um, but I would... So I would favor a strong welfare state, relatively high taxation. I would like to see both education and health being free at point of use. Health, because you cannot choose um, whether you're healthy or ill. And therefore, I, I think treatment should be free. And education, because living in a society where people are better educated is Useful for everyone is an asset to everyone. I'm with you. And I also I also support um, UBI, Universal Basic Income, because I feel that would free up many people to do fulfilling uh, charity or artistic work that they otherwise cannot do. Mm-hmm. Um, and. I also want to see strong social infrastructure. So for example, I'm very much in favor of um, an excellent public transport system. I would like to see more cities having a, with a congestion charge similar to London so that you have to pay if you're going to use your car. I would support um, more cycle lanes, more public transport, uh, less car traffic. I also um, Feel strongly about environmental protections, and um, and I'm and I'm socially liberal. I support gay marriage. I support trans rights. I um, I believe in equality of opportunity, and I'm a feminist. Something that we will probably argue about, and we'll come back to that later. Yeah. So, but um, <laughs> I also am a strong believer in free speech in science, in taking an unemotional and objective view even of quite potentially inflammatory or upsetting topics. And I'm very much opposed to identity politics in the sense of um, the belief that you can only understand certain issues if you have a specific identity.
1: Standpoint theory. standpoint
0: theory. I don't believe that at all. I believe everyone can develop empathy. And I'm also very opposed to privilege discourse. I I think it's reasonable to talk about inequalities and disadvantages and to try to eliminate those. But I don't like the idea of privilege. I feel that it is,
1: it leads to a kind of um, scapegoating, of innocent people? It comes from the wrong direction, doesn't it? When we're looking at, at privilege rather than disadvantage, then we are looking at blaming a certain group of people who may have absolutely nothing to do with this um, presumed privilege that they have gained due to having a penis or white skin. And um, we're not looking at disadvantages that people could have unfairly because of their genitals or skin. So I, I think this does come from the wrong direction. We want to focus on disadvantaged people. Why are they disadvantaged? How we know they're disadvantaged and what can be done about it rather than focusing on people who are supposed to be privileged. And, and I fully believe that um, that society does privilege some groups over others, but not in a simplistic way. I think there are, are layers of this with um, class and wealth and education tending to overrule everything else. But we need to, to be able to talk about this and look at this in less of a way of how to bring down the privileged people and more of a way of how to ensure that the underprivileged people are accessing the same opportunities. Uh, That's exactly how I
0: feel. So I feel that on the one hand, this
1: kind of privileged discourse
0: blinds people to the individual circumstances of people's lives. Mm. And what matters fundamentally is not necessarily um, what skin color you have, what sex you are, what sexuality, uh, what groups you can be placed in, but what your actual life circumstances are like.
1: Mm. You're bringing it down to the level of the individual again.
0: Uh, yes, I think you have to always look at, indi- you have to always judge individuals case by case. Mm. So this is both true when we're talking about um, assessing their character and personality, um, deciding how liberal or illiberal they are. Um, All of that has to be done at an individual level. Mm -hmm. We can't, for example, say this person is a Muslim and therefore has very illiberal ideas and is misogynistic and homophobic because I have practicing Muslim friends who are not like that at all. You have to look case by case at what the individual is actually like, but the same is true of their circumstances. So you can't assume because... They seem like they're members of the kind of group which has advantages, that they have advantages. So that's the first thing. You have to know what the person's actual circumstances are to know whether they are struggling or whether they are affluent and doing well. And I think the most important aspect of that and an aspect that... Um, the social justice left tends to disre- largely disregard is their financial circumstances. Absolutely, yes. Do they have financial stability? Um, do they have steady income? Do they have family support? I think those are the most important things and are much more important than skin color, religion, race, sex, etc. So there are some issues specifically affecting specific groups. But the most important thing for individuals is their support structure and their finances.
1: Mm.
0: So that's, that's the first point. And the second point is that to focus on privilege, I feel valorizes envy. It makes it seem that if the person is affluent, let's say, that is a good thing. What we want to do is bring other people up to that level. We want everybody to enjoy certain rights. We want everybody to enjoy certain protections. We want everybody to have um, a life that is reasonably comfortable. Yeah. Uh, that That is my aim. But at the same time, when somebody is doing well, rather than blaming them and getting angry and describing them as privileged, which has become very much a um, a criticism or even a slur, mm. I think it's I, – I find that psychologically extremely unhealthy.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. We can certainly look at these, um, these privileges that exist without being um, – without legitimizing hatred of a certain group should we say i mean would you agree i've argued before that there was some validity with um universal liberalism with with traditional liberalism there has always been this focus on the individual and on the universal and so nothing in the middle really so there was this um ideal that uh, the individual uh, own uh, abilities and and talents and nature should be encouraged to express itself in every way it should be able to have um every single opportunity that's available and um access sort of yeah universal society-wide benefits and this tended to jump over uh something which could be in the middle which would be um categories which would be classes or races or gender and so i tend to think that when um in the in the nineties, when when people like Kimberley Crenshaw and others said there isn't any focus on group identity here, that they did have something of a point because if we are looking solely at individuals and at the individual and the universal, then we might be missing some part of of human of, of the structure of of human nature of, of of society. So, I think that liberalism did tend to to be a bit naive a bit idealistic about categories it was as though it was right give women give people of color give lgbt the same rights and then everything will be fine and not tend to look into to problems that that can exist purely on a categorical sort of cultural level i think that 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 Kind of analysis on that kind of level could join with universal liberalism without, as it has done, sort of wiping out the individual and our shared humanity and focusing solely on identity. Would you? Would you agree mm. that there? Well, as you said, you identify as a feminist, while I don't. So, it seems you do agree, at least on that score. Um, I do. Yes. So I think first of all, um, social attitudes lag behind
0: law. Hmm. By long, usually by quite a considerable measure. So, you know, the first thing is to make sure that all the laws are in place which guarantee individuals their equal rights. And then the next thing is to look at people's social attitudes and try to change them. And I think that's what the latter, um, the social justice left is certainly trying to change people's attitudes. Mm-hmm. So they are taking groups which were, Um, traditionally which people were traditionally prejudiced against such as for example um, LGBT people and they are attempting to um, give more value to those categories Mm. to make those things more acceptable more uh, celebrated more praised and I feel that that's quite um, that's quite a laudatory aim but I tend to uh, disagree with the strategies and methods Mm. so I would much prefer to tackle these kinds of prejudices by trying to get beyond um, considering people on the basis of uh, these of their mutable characteristics, whether it's sex, sexuality, race, etc, I'd like to try to get beyond that, to put much more emphasis on what unites us, mm-hmm. to find common ground rather than on what divides us.
1: Yeah, I completely agree, and I think this is the big divide at the moment because we're all all of us sort of left liberals are trying to equalize a society to to give everybody the same um, status, the same opportunities. But there's two very different visions of how to do this going on with the, the social justice left believing that this can only be done by looking at race, looking at gender, looking at sexuality, gender identity, very specifically of um, examining language on the level of the word, unpicking it, finding evidence of... Um, implicit even unconscious prejudice in order to just root it out or these um, biases and and prejudices at at the at the root just get rid of them and then there is the universal sort of liberal way which, which thinks that this will happen and has happened significantly and, and incredibly fast by just treating everybody as though they are the same as frowning uh, by frowning upon people who discriminate by people who make assumptions based on gender race or sexuality and there's there there are right and wrong answers here what is going to make uh, prejudice and discrimination go away faster is it looking intensely at gender and race or is it largely ignoring it and looking at, apart from racism and sexism obviously and and treating people as individuals and frowning upon racism and sexism and in that way society will sort of gradually well not even gradually grow towards a more universal approach I mean if we look at the ways at at how fast we've come I mean if we watch something that was on television 10 years ago there are still some things that would shock us now and Every generation is getting less racist, less less sexist for the last 60 years. So I am inclined to think that the universal liberal approach, the approach of not focusing on race, of frowning upon judging people by race, gender or sexuality, has given the most evidence of working. Yes, I I absolutely agree.
0: Um, So I do feel that... um... I share a lot of goals with the social justice left, and this is also why I'm on the left. Um, And I do share some goals with more moderate people on the right as well. Mm -hmm. So you, I have noticed, are very balanced in your critiques of left and right. Uh, Following you on Twitter and also reading your published articles, you spend a lot of time arguing against what I would consider to be regressive or reactionary ideas on the right. People who want to return mm-hmm. to a more traditional lifestyle or who want more set, fixed gender roles. Um, yeah. Also, um, and I spend very little of my time uh, doing that. I do uh, find myself um, often arguing against ethno-nationalists and the Hindu far right. hmm so I spend a lot of time talking, uh, arguing with ethno-nationalists and the alt-right, and, um, but I don't really focus, for example, very much on Trump's administration. And I uh, the reason is not that I feel that the left is necessarily a larger threat. Um, I actually dislike this whole te- people's tendency to try to guess which is the larger threat Mm -hmm. which thing is going to cause most trouble down the down the line
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um which group is going to be the most influential in the longer term that's what
1: james and i called existential polarization didn't we? our manifesto against the enemies of modernity that's that's the faulty thinking that we should avoid
0: you're a friend to modernity i think that's a good description of you (laughs) But I think that um, that is fortune-telling. I don't have a crystal ball. I have no idea how much of a threat the alt-right is going to be um, in the longer term. I also have no idea how much of a threat the regressive left is going to be in the longer term. Um, I don't know who will be politically victorious. I don't know what influences are going to become most prevalent. I really have no idea. I'm not good at predictions. Uh, So therefore, I try to focus on combating bad ideas from all sides whenever I encounter them. Mm. But I do encounter them more on the left because I follow uh, the left much
1: more closely. It's also completely natural to be more indignant by people doing your own side wrongly. Uh, this this is what I, I find. You know, they say that, that heretics always get the most blame. And, yeah, to a certain extent, this this is true, that there, there are purity tests going on. But on another level, this is also quite natural. If you believe in something, then, of course, you're going to be most annoyed with people who share your aims but are behaving in a way which you feel are counterproductive to them. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> And in fact, sometimes, you know, I'm
0: critiquing the left on Twitter, for example, and uh, some right wing people um, comment on my post and they say, oh, yes, you're totally right. The left sucks. And I'm always really pissed off with them. (laughs) And I tend to give them very short shrift because I um, I admire people who are constructively critical i.e. either criticizing their own side in order to clean up their own side.
1: I think, I think that constructive same-side criticism is the absolute optimum.
0: Yes, and I, I dislike smugness, mm-hmm. this kind of finger-pointing and, ooh, look at you. Aren't, you, aren't you being silly, you lefties. I absolutely mm-hmm. hate that. Um, so I, I like to criticize the left with other leftists from within the left, yeah. In general. Um, and I'm also quite willing to side with almost anybody um, on specific individual issues, particularly free speech. Mm-hmm. On the right, people are hypocritical about free speech very frequently. They say they support free speech, but they actually only support free speech for their own side and are shutting down people whose ideas they don't agree with. Mm. But at least they're paying lip service to it, whereas on the left, increasingly, people are actually saying that they feel free speech is damaging and dangerous. It's a right wing thing now. It's become a kind of right wing talking point. Unfortunately, the right is not really supporting free speech either mm-hmm. or large segments of the right.
1: Yeah, Um of course, there are people on both sides who genuinely are consistently supporting free speech. But yeah, quite a lot of the people on the right who, who say that they are, are really picking on this as an aspect of the left, which is a very visible problem.
0: I think that free speech is the bedrock of all other values. Mm-hmm. And it's a very, it's always a really thankless topic. And it's a really difficult thing to defend because like almost all valuable things, it involves trade-offs. And in the case of free speech, the trade-offs are enormous. Mm. So I do believe, for example, that speech definitely can be dangerous, can be harmful, that there are people who are very persuasive demagogues who can voice opinions, which will sway others Mm. and may lead those others to um, do terrible acts, to commit terrible acts of rape, of violence. Um, So I don't believe that speech is harmless, and nor do I believe that at least in the short term, the best ideas will win out in the marketplace of ideas. I think that's true in the long term, um, but it may not be true in the short term. Very very, very harmful, dangerous ideas can gain a lot of currency. Um, So it's not that I think uh, speech is never dangerous or harmful, but that despite it being dangerous and harmful, I also believe that everything important that we have achieved uh, as a society, as a species, everything um, beautiful we have produced, Um, everything thoughtful has also come about as a result of people's free speech. But uh, really, when I am following uh, opinions on the the right, I simply disagree in general with them, and that's rather uninteresting to me, to just disagree.
1: Fundamental disagreement, yeah.
0: Yes, fundamental disagreement. Whereas when I'm reading crazy things, Uh, coming from the left I usually agree with at least some of the aims or with some of the things that are being said and then people are taking them in directions which I think are slightly insane or very exaggerated or um, really we begin from the same point and then they wander off in a direction that I didn't foresee Mm. or that I foresaw you know with with Foreboding and dread. Mm. I thought, oh no, are they going to do this thing again? Are they going to go in this social justice direction? Are they going to start ranting about how straight white men are so privileged and need to shut the fuck up? And I assume we can swear on our podcast.
1: Of course we can. We're grown (laughs) ups. Yeah.
0: I think otherwise it will be almost impossible for me to do a podcast. (laughs) But So that, for me, is much more interesting to try to unpick where the points of disagreement are.
1: Mm. I've Uh, argued this as well, because people have assumed that because I go deep, deep into the thinking of the left and with the right, it it really is just a, a, a very simplistic, well, obviously this. Idea is wrong, and so I consequently spend much more time on the left. That I have a bias towards the right, which is just the absolute opposite of the truth. As I think uh, you are saying, that the problems on the right are just so obviously wrong when you get into the far right you get into well women shouldn't have the same rights and gay people shouldn't get married yeah yeah (laughs) it's really uninteresting I mean that the the extremes of the right are the neo-nazis the alt-right the ethno-nationalists I mean we're coming from a completely different place if you don't already know why ethno-nationalism neo-nazism is wrong then how can we have a discussion? But if you are on the far left and you are concerned by the plight of marginalised people, then we can have a discussion because I am too. So that is much much more interesting because we can get into the details of why I think the social justice left are going wrong in their methodology. But I have to say, as well as the the different perception of the world and I, I like to be charitable and and i think that most far leftists do have good motives but there is also a, a real element of viciousness of unkindness of sort of of of, of spite which yes, is yes absolutely and and that is is not politically specific that comes from both sides obviously that comes from everywhere that's that's a particularly nasty attribute of of humanity so that i find i find that that being empowered by being given some prestige of activism of um some kind of of noble aim it is really quite worrying i find the mentality that can be hateful towards men that can think of you know men being being wiped out or or white people being genocided or you know that that's the extremes but there there is a real a real spitefulness towards certain groups which is not of the left it's not of the right either it, it is a a a human thing which comes out in all forms of extremist zealotry so when we say that we are we share aims with the far left. I think that's, that's true, but that doesn't mean that everybody is well motivated. I think that the, the cultural prestige that the left has in many ways is also allowing some people with some really quite nasty uh, prejudiced attitudes to have a level of influence and, and reputation that they just don't deserve.
0: Yeah, I think there's also been a move towards suggesting that if you are willing to discuss things, to talk to certain people or to think about certain ideas, Mm. even if it's ultimately to disagree with those people or to refute those ideas, that the mere fact of talking to the people or even giving the ideas your consideration is in itself bigoted.
1: Mm. Um, It's a purity test by by considering these ideas, if only to refute them, you have stepped away from the purity of what is right.
0: Absolutely, I mean, I've, I feel that this is ironically uh, what has given Charles Murray so much publicity lately. Um, mm-hmm. I read The Bell Curve, um, so I'm gonna go to Charles mm-hmm. Murray as a particularly uh, striking example of this happening
1: recently. I'm I'm Even not though, familiar with his writing, so I'll be interested to hear what you think.
0: So I read the bell curve when it first came out, which mm-hmm. I think um, was about ten years ago. I can't uh, recall exactly now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did not find it particularly interesting or striking. And I, in fact, I remember the chapter on. Average Differences of IQ by Racial Group. Mm. I remember reading that chapter and having a moment of, whoa, um, of, of sort of surprise. And I, I suppose dismay. I was a little dismayed by this. Mm. I don't like the idea that people will be, uh, intelligence is linked to race.
1: It makes um, me crazy as IQ well. Or IQ is
0: linked to race. So I remember having that moment of queasiness and surprise
1: Mm.
0: and then uh, the book goes on to say um, well they're much larger um, intra-group than than intergroup differences Mm. in IQ and the intergroup differences are actually quite small and also IQ can change over time although this would not necessarily invalidate these group differences but the Flynn effect was mentioned, um, mm-hmm. which is the phenomenon that I, people's IQ in general has been rising over the past century. This is, I, I um, think I
1: read I read something in the last few days. There were a few reports w- which showed it seemed to be dropping for the first time. Oh God! I blame Trump.
0: <laughs> He's dragging the entire world's IQ down a few notches. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, let, let's just blame him. That that works well.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um so I remember reading that feeling some moments of um dismay and then I read the disclaimers that came afterwards and he also said you know this may be partly genetic um partly environmental and we don't know what to what extent it's genetic or environmental and I think in my own mind I just sort of wrote it off I said okay these differences are small and maybe largely environmental
1: and in so mostly, what? for the most part, it it isn't useful, is it? I mean, I I it's, think scientists should certainly scientist IQ scientists, cognitive scientists, whatever should certainly be able to do to study this. But for our general purposes, for ninety nine point nine percent of the population's general purposes, IQ in relation to race or whatever else is simply not relevant because you know, the individual, as, as Murray has said, as as you and I have said, is what we are looking at. And I I always,
0: I, I mean, yeah, I, Murray himself gives this example. He says, what if you read my research and you thought, okay, white people are always more intelligent than black people. Or you had to choose between Donald Trump and Barack Obama as to who is most most intelligent. I mean, Barack Obama, strictly speaking, is mixed race or biracial, I believe is the politically correct term now. Mm -hmm. Um, But nevertheless, if you went by the color of the skin, you would be completely off. I
1: remember he he mentioned um, Barack Obama in, um, in his talk with Sam Harris, didn't he?
0: Yes, exactly. That was in the talk with Sam Harris when he appeared on the Waking Up podcast. Mm-hmm. I, I think that episode was called Forbidden Knowledge. Oh, yeah. So I, I really didn't pay much attention to that book at all. Mm. And at a later period, I actually read Murray's, one of Murray's other books, which is called Human Achievement. And I really thought that was a terrible book. Mm. Um, in it, he makes some arguments about uh, how... Europeans have had a, a far greater number of achievements than any other racial group. And I thought his evidence for that was extremely shaky. But I didn't really take that to mean that he was, well, I don't know whether to call him a racist. It just sounded very old fashioned, that book. It mm-hmm. was like someone who's been educated in a, in a classic tr- uh, Western tradition, and is just unfamiliar with other uh, cultural, um, other literary and cultural productions from other cultures. I, I've and-
1: been—I uh, haven't read anything further of his, but I've, I've um, been following his Twitter feed occasionally, mm. and, and I find myself generally um, in disagreement with his politics because he is conventionally a conservative. So yeah. that certainly he, doesn't yeah. mean that he's racist. It doesn't mean that his work has no validity. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't study race, IQ, or anything else. But it does mean that we can disagree with him politically whilst keeping this separate from his work.
0: Absolutely. He does support UBI, though, Universal Basic Income, which I also he support. See- he does. So that's the one point on which I, um, of major agreement that I have with him. Um, but, you know, I think that no one would have even remembered The Bell Curve, and I had completely forgotten about it. Mm. Um, and I, I, you know, I had not given that book another thought between reading it and um, the whole kerfuffle at Middlebury College, Middleborough mm. College, Middleborough College about a year ago. Mm. And, you know, what, Uh, What brought him back into the limelight was not that people suddenly became really interested in race and IQ, um, but that um, he was uh, he was the object of such fervent protests. Yeah. And and in particular that Alison Stanger, the faculty member who Mm. hosted him at Middleborough,
1: was injured, her car
0: was surrounded by mob, and yes, she had her collarbone broken mm-hmm. and she was hospitalized. And apparently, she still has, um, uh, so according to uh, um, Harris, she still has side effects from the injuries that she sustained on that day mm-hmm. more than a year ago. Um, and that sounds absolutely terrifying to me, mm-hmm. and that I feel is what brought him into the limelight. Yeah. it was people saying you can't discuss this you can't even think about it or you must automatically be a fascist a bigot etc yes and that makes people want to um, read and find out about it when you okay. tell people you can't think about this you can't read this
1: exactly uh, I mean. human
0: nature is such that you want to read about it and actually I think the subject itself is really boring but mm. um, I am really dismayed by the free speech implications
1: i find um particularly i i find gender differences um biological ones particularly interesting and this is often regarded with suspicion i don't tend to find racial differences if there are any you know the the science of this is is still very inconclusive and that It's not particularly interesting. I'm not sure it's particularly valuable, but obviously I support scientists' right to look into it. But I think the gender differences, the science of gender differences is both interesting and important because of what we see going on in society at the moment. I think it is actually really important that we understand that differences on average exist, that these could manifest in different choices on average and also understanding differences in communication skills, in sexuality, in um, perceptions are is generally useful for gender relations. So I find all of this fascinating and I'd love to see a kind of gender studies which um, which incorporated this as well, but this too is completely forbidden. I mean, as you um, probably know, I I was recently Mm. part of a panel with um, James Damore and and Heather Hying and um, Peter Boghossian where we tried to talk about this and the misrepresentation of Damore's um, memo was just astounding. People who haven't read it and people who have read it as were still saying that he said women were biologically unfit to do uh, tech. And that was just so completely not what was said, but the very suggestion that there could be differences on average which result in different uptakes. And even though he suggested ways to make the job more attractive to women who have um higher sort of interest in people skills than tech skills it didn't matter at all it was just so badly sort of misrepresented and and we I mean a lot of this we we didn't say but in the few days before when we were we were sitting and waiting to go in we were getting reports that um, somebody had threatened grenades, somebody had threatened bricks. We found out later that um, someone had been stopped with a um, faeces-filled nappy, a, a diaper, and <laughs> this was simply for talking about the possibility that gender differences existed. This, this is what is is so very worrying. You know, I so I. Um... I'm not an expert on this topic
0: so I the, in my uninformed opinion I tend to disagree with De Moore's thesis his hypothesis
1: What what um, do you see partly, his
0: hypothesis as being Um so par- it's partly because I have uh, I see his hypothesis as being that women are less likely to be interested in tech on mm-hmm. average
1: yeah
0: and um And I think there is to some element element of being less capable on average.
1: Not not capable. Remember that there's no difference at all with capability, only in interest.
0: Ah, well, in intellectual capability, no. But I think he says women are more neurotic on average. And he's using that term in a very technical sense. I don't take that to be... I know that in psych, to say that someone is... uh, To talk about neuroticism isn't necessarily... It's not mental um, illness.
1: Yeah. No, it's
0: not necessarily a negative quality. You want yeah. an optimum amount of neuroticism, as That's I understood. Right, it. Um, people not who are quite... not
1: neurotic at all are psychopaths.
0: Right. You don't want to go
1: all the way to Woody Allen, but you want to hit somewhere in the middle. Um, hmm. So I th- neuroticism I... has probably helped women um, to take care of their children in the past, being s- more over anxious than than average has been more helpful, whereas it has been more helpful for men to underestimate risks. Right. So it's about risk
0: assessment and attention. Um, so uh, I, I don't I didn't hear him say the word neurotic and think this is a slur. Um, but if you are on average more neurotic, therefore, there's a temperamental unsuitability on average, Okay, so I don't think I this
1: to. at all affects the women who want to do tech.
0: But the I, I, res-
1: yeah, sorry, go on. Sorry, I, I was just going to say if if um, if neuroticism itself was the problem, I, I don't see why that would affect women who want to work with tech, seeing as that tech is um, consistent and reliable more than it would women who want to work with people who aren't. <laughs> I
0: don't feel. That it's yet the moment to say, okay, this is um, definitely the way it's always going to be. And it's because of the fundamental difference between men and women and their preferences
1: on average. No, it's just something to consider as well. I mean, this is what James DeMore said in his memo, and it's what he brought out more in the talk that we did together, which was that as well as um, socialised differences, as well as possible discrimination, as well as possible cultural conditioning, also look at the much, much replicated um, information which shows that um, women are more likely to be interested in jobs that involve people and men are more likely to be interested in the jobs which involve things or, in, in this case, um, you know, sort of concepts. right? And I I think that that is valuable. We certainly shouldn't um, think that we have reached a point now which purely represents what men and women want to do. There seems to have been a shift where when women were very much discouraged from doing uh, STEM subjects, women weren't going into it then this improved considerably but now within um, cultures where men and women have um, the most equality to choose it's dying down again women are showing less interest in stem subjects than men when they have more right to when choose. When they have more so,
0: freedom. Yes. Yes. I I mean and I, I think, do see that uh, but I I still find it not compelling so I still feel like so many times in the past We've looked at the way things currently were, and we've said, okay, we now know what women prefer and what men prefer. And I still don't feel that we're in a position to say, right, we've reached the point where everything's neutral, and so we're just going by people's preferences. So I retain a kind of skepticism about this, um, about how well we can judge and gauge
1: I I think it will probably take perhaps another century of everybody having exactly the same opportunities of society being fully accepting of men and women choosing whatever options they want for us to see what men and women will on average do. Mm, yeah. So
0: I I um but one of the larger points here is that although I disagree with de um and I have read the memo Mm-hmm. I disagree with him, first of all, after reading the memo, um, which I have found increasingly people are disagreeing and disagreeing really vehemently with things they have not actually even read, mm-hmm. which is, I find, you know, as a former um, academic, I find that extremely annoying. These yeah. students who have not done the reading, they should not be in class. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. They should not, not be participating in the discussion. Go home and do the reading, boys and girls. Mm. Um, so that's the first thing. I've read it and carefully. And the second thing is that um, I find that not enough people are able to say, I disagree with this. You're wrong. Without going immediately into accusations of bigotry. Mm. So I disagree with Demore, but that doesn't mean I am- I think he's a sexist, a bigot, an incel, somebody called him. Um, although I believe he has a girlfriend. But yes. somehow they feel he fits this category. Mm. Um, you know i i I find that very um, it dismays me that people are not able to just say, "I disagree," or I think this science is wrong." Uh, in the mm. case of Murray, I think uh, you know, that people can't, for example, say, "I disagree on the on scientific grounds." without going
1: straight to he is a racist. Absolutely. I completely agree. I think that um, you, know, I'd, I'd probably put a different weight on what James Damore said to um, what you do, but I do think that we can discuss this, and I appreciate that you accept that he is not coming from a sexist position, and that makes conversation possible. You are suggesting he could be wrong. That is yeah. so much different than suggesting he could be immoral,
0: yeah, I think he's pro- probably a very nice bloke. you know, I have no problem with him having this hypothesis or writing the memo um, or publishing the memo or being interviewed or or anything else hmm. um but i I probably disagree with him uh on on a
1: kind of factual basis hmm. we we disagree, I understand that you are. Um, certainly coming from a um, well-intentioned and sincere position, you could understand that I was, even if we really profoundly disagreed on this and never found common ground, that would not affect our ability to talk about things, to bounce ideas off each other, which is essentially what is productive in the whole sort of liberal idea of the marketplace of ideas.
0: Yes, and I feel this has really strongly... um, um, gone astray in the, in here in the US in particular mm-hmm. um, especially since Trump's election of course, the polarization has been very intense so I think it's really important to try to build bridges and to kind of go back to when you're talking to somebody, rather than starting from their conclusion, which you find really offensive, for example um we need to outlaw abortions. Mm. So you, you can start from that conclusion and get really angry and upset about it. Or you can try to retrace and find the last point at which you are in agreement. So mm-hmm. you start by conceding. I agree with you on these things. And then you can build from there. Absolutely. And even if you don't come to an agreement, because you've outlined some things you have in common, you just have a better relationship with them. Um, and I feel as though uh, um, on the left, on the right as well, but I'm more worried when I see it happening on the left. A lot of people are not willing to do that anymore. Or if they see you doing it, they say, oh, you're making concessions to this racist, bigot, white supremacist, fascist, neo-Nazi. Yeah. And it's it's impossible to work with that. And I do believe that you can probably talk to and find some common ground with anybody, including I, some racist, bigotest, bigoted, fascist, neo-Nazi. If you go far back enough, and that's the I, only I absolutely, I,
1: I absolutely agree. I um, was, a couple of years ago, was, was in a group um, in which I was kind of alone in wanting to talk to people with very different views and with views which I personally found objectionable and so did they. And I found myself being accused of being um, a tolerant of intolerance and mm. being being gullible and being naive. And I, I, have, I made this um, little, you know, I make these sort of graphic things which are a couple of paragraphs explaining my views on something and I made this because... I was getting an awful lot of pushback on the people that I chose to talk to. Mm. The group that I was in was um, telling me that this was unacceptable, that I was um, validating um, bigotry and prejudice. And I eventually, I moved away from that circle of people because I don't necessarily think that they... Were wrong in having a very critical position to some of the people that I was talking to, but I do think that they were wrong in um, associating, to, in saying that I was associating myself with such beliefs by trying to talk to these people, by finding some common ground with these people. Mm-hmm. And at one end, there still is a call out culture in which um, you just spoke to this person who has this attitude explain yourself and at the other end there is a real cultural libertarianism which is kind of laissez-faire who cares what people think just talk to everybody anyway just bond with everybody anyway and I think that there needs to be a kind of a balance where we do not purity test where we can talk to absolutely anyone but where we can have a consistency of principles Mm. in which we say yeah these some ideas are really not liberal and we can criticize them but we are not at the extent of saying well you spoke to somebody who is friends with somebody who was on a podcast with somebody who is who is <laughs> the dog right. walk
0: of the sister of the you know
1: brother-in-law of yeah. Um, of the person who once lived next door to, <laughs> yes, yeah. precisely. And I, I really think that this is something that's very, very difficult to navigate because we don't want to have a call out culture where it's, um, yeah, you spoke to someone with slightly questionable views, and we don't. Want to have, by association. Yeah, and we don't want this complete cultural libertarianism where you just, uh, yeah, any anything goes. You can. Um, find common ground with absolutely everybody i mean there are certainly some things you can find common ground on but you know if you're a, there, there there are certain ideas which are illiberal and we should be able to say no i'm i'm not agreeing with that yeah yeah i mean talking about talking to everyone
0: i think one of the um important things is cross-generational Um, Mm -hmm. so all of my friends of my age and younger are very liberal. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Um, and I think that I, um, I have only, I know, have only two friends who are practicing Muslims and they're both very, very, very much on the liberal end. Um, and, uh, one of them is an admirer of Majid Nawaz, which might give you Mm -hmm. an idea of how liberal he is, uh, in his beliefs and attitudes. Um, but, um. I so everybody who I am personally friendly with is extremely liberal, yeah, um, although I do have a few friends who are who I would describe as moderately right leaning, uh, yeah. economically right leaning um, and um but basically very socially liberal in their beliefs. But my friends' mm-hmm. parents um span the full range of political opinions. So my you know, my friend's parents are, for example, uh, very conservative and traditional Muslims uh, right. in some cases, and Trump supporters, on the other hand, in other cases. Mm. And of course, you know, so I feel as though uh, some of my liberal friends in the States have retained this ability to talk to everybody calmly because their parents are so different in belief from them mm. and their parents are actually very loving uh, and wonderful people. Yeah. And the guy who I later discovered is a very fervent Trump supporter. And when you read his Facebook, it sounds so hate filled, condescending and nasty about liberals mm. um, was, uh, you know, extremely nice to me Um was financially generous and generous in other ways. Was a super kind person uh, who remains my friend. I just don't read his Facebook feed, <laughs> which is lots of pro-Trumpian ranting, because I disagree mm. with that. But I can't, um, I can't possibly um, write him off as a person. Whereas yeah. on the other hand, I've encountered certainly online in in real life less so, but in real life also on a few occasions people with whom I am in full agreement politically who are absolutely nasty people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So I think it's important to separate the ideas from the people. Mm. And I think it's also important to be able to, um, cherry pick. I know that's a term that's often used negatively, but I generally think cherry picking is a good thing. Um, it should be possible to um, to decide. I agree with them on these issues and not on these other issues,
1: hmm.
0: and um, not to be not to assume because a person agrees with one one statement that someone has made that they therefore agree with everything that they have ever yeah, said. Yeah, I, or I
1: think that's a bit different to cherry picking, because I I, I see cherry picking as taking uh, in this case a person and just picking their good views and saying that defines them and then that is biased and dishonest but if you're saying I here's this person I agree with these things they say I disagree with those things they say that I would say is not so much cherry picking as a balanced assessment and a a very sort of positive thing because you're, you're seeing someone as a A collection of ideas Mm, a collection mm, of thoughts so yeah yeah.
0: I think you know the other thing I feel is that um, consistency is very important Uh, even when you have two issues in which one is much more um, serious than the other if they're similar in kind you should support them both or oppose them both and it Mm. makes it makes life much easier that way so for example you know i do think there is a lot more racism against people with darker skins than vice versa
1: yeah
0: um uh, speaking on uh looking at it globally and probably also just even within the united states which Mm. i think is one of the least racist places and, and uh, within the UK. And within the UK. So I think still the racism is mostly in that direction. It's Absolutely. mostly towards brown and black people. And I saw this a lot in India. Uh, in India, it's known as colorism because these are all people of the same race. But there's a mm.
1: prejudice towards those whose skin tones are darker. Yeah. And I really deplore that. But this is not the, um, you know, that this is... is... A, a truly, a truly racist view, but it isn't um, a white supremacist view because the view that of white people is um, immorality is promiscuity is shallowness is is, um, is is really quite quite negative.
0: So I think that you know um, I do think that it's not that I think that anti-white racism is anything like as serious as widespread, etc. And I know mm. that a lot of the kind of anti-white discourse that I hear is hyperbole, yeah. especially when it's white people saying it. It's sort of gestural politics. It's virtue mm. signaling. You know, they don't really mean it when they say I yeah. hate fuck white people or whatever. They don't really mean it. But mm. nevertheless, I feel as I feel um, if we want to oppose. All forms of racism. It's much easier to do that if you are just consistent.
1: Yeah, if you absolutely. Just say
0: skin colour doesn't matter. Um, I don't hate brown people. I don't hate black people. I don't hate white people. Um, I think it's 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 so much easier if you are not a hypocrite in this. Mm. It's easier psychologically. It's easier to persuade people. It's the more. more
1: it's the stronger position logically mm. and ethically i mean i don't think hypocrisy is really the right word to describe those people who see balance the systems of power and structures and hierarchy because mm. they're mm. very open and consistent about seeing that and about the need to reverse it right. but from okay. a universal liberal point of view it is inconsistent yeah, so yeah. It, it does need addressing.
0: Yeah, I I agree, I, and I feel the same way about male circumcision versus female genital mutilation. Mm-hmm. So I know there are a few um, forms of female genital mutilation that are, are less severe, where you yeah. they are just removing the hood of the clitoris or part of the hood. Um, but in general. Uh, uh you know most forms of female genital mutilation are much much more brutal and the effects are um permanent pain
1: yeah we shouldn't um, equalize the the only no. equality there is on the level of um autonomy and choice
0: yeah but i think you know so i used to get very annoyed when people were talking about female genital mutilation and and some anti-circumcision activists would pipe up and say, well, what about circumcision? Um, Even though I oppose circumcision, I used to find that extremely infuriating. But now I actually um, support them because Mm. I think it's just, it's easier to oppose um, FGM if you're just consistent and yeah. it is the morally correct position. Circumcision is also wrong. It's not yeah. a se- nothing like a severe and bad, but it's also wrong. Yeah, I feel you know. I feel it's a stronger, better position to
1: take. Exactly. I mean, we we don't have to make false equivalences, but we can. Yeah, on the principle of bodily autonomy, then yeah, it is the same thing. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, if you're going to
0: operate on someone, you need their informed consent. Yep. And uh, if it's the case of a child, then um, you, the first principle is do no harm. Mm. And you will operate on them or treat them um, only if the alternative is serious risk of permanent injury, disability, illness, death. mm mm-hmm. um, if there are no, if there's no risk in not performing the procedure, then you don't perform the procedure until the person can give consent, which is when they come of age. Yeah. So to me, that's a, that's all we need to oppose um, both forms of all forms of gentle mutilation. Also, um, intersex operations. I know that many intersex people don't talk about intersex mutilation. They prefer not to use that term. But all forms of surgery, gentle surgery, done unnecessarily and without consent of the patient, where there's no real pressing health risk, we can oppose them all on that basis. We don't have to try to uh, oppose them on the basis of how much harm do they do or, or do they not do. Mm. Absolutely. Okay, so I think we should wrap up. Yep. Yep. I can kind of summarize how we're similar and different, which might mm-hmm. be fun, okay, or or might not be fun. Let's see.
1: Yeah, I can have a fight with you about that.
0: <laughs> so we're we're both British, although I am yeah. not from Essex. So that's one thing that differentiates. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You're still a worthwhile person. Thank you. <laughs> um, and we both have Indian connections. Uh, In my case, my father. In your case, your daughter. Yeah. Um, And let me see. Um, We're both liberals. We're both leftists. Yeah. I'm a feminist and you're not. And I also, um, although I'm not going to talk about actual belief on this podcast, um, Mm -hmm. uh, I do practice a religion. Mm -hmm. And you clearly do not. I clearly Um, do not. (laughs) I have such a weird, funky religion, it seems a shame not to practice it, frankly. Hmm. Um, Somebody (laughs) described it as a vintage, hipster vintage religion.
1: I think it was Christopher Hitchens who said if there was just one um, member of religion, was it Christianity, that he would encourage it so that it didn't disappear. So Uh I, I kind of see that, but also just don't be silly. (laughs) (laughs) um yeah and
0: i am uh so my background is uh, um artsy i'm a very emotional person i write poetry um i dance i used to paint um and uh you are very rational and analytical
1: yes yes i don't tend to do the um emotional analysis the um the 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 emotive sort of uh sensitive intuitive stuff I'm sure I do quite a bit of it by mistake but um not on purpose Mm -hmm.
0: (laughs) so I think we complement each other well
1: yes yes we we might have some arguments but um, yes I I have a feeling that you that, that that I might be trying to rein you in a bit and you might be trying to draw me out a bit
0: Yes, you do have to be careful because if I'm left to my own devices, I will just talk the entire
1: (laughs) time. And you're an introvert and I'm an extrovert. Yep. And yet, in this conversation that we've had, I feel that it has been pretty much 50-50. Okay, that's it. And uh, everybody, we will will start regular episodes uh, soon. Mm -hmm. Um, This has been... been... This has been rather in a a sort of experimental seeing how it goes, talking about things, working out what we're going to do kind of podcast, so just watch this space, we are going to do wonderful things
0: We are World domination begins now (laughs) Absolutely This podcast was made possible thanks to the tech support provided by Boyan Vanderheide and Olivier And I'd also like to thank Thomas Cortellesi for providing our logo.